and welcome to the February 2022 Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. On this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss equal access to justice. Equal access to justice is about making the rule of law fair for everyone. There's more to it than just improving an individual's access to courts or guaranteeing legal representation. It's the ability of the people to seek and obtain a remedy through formal or informal institutions of justice to address grievances. It involves working together to achieve fairness and making sure no one with a legal problem is excluded from justice. This can be achieved through common sense practices that facilitate equal justice, initiatives to make court processes more transparent, utilizing technology to improve accessibility, and considering changes to state regulatory practices that might allow non-attorneys to assist litigants. That's coming up, stay tuned. Welcome back everybody to Lady Justice. I'm Bridget McCormick from the Michigan Supreme Court and I am delighted to be back with my dear friends, Beth Walker from the West Virginia Supreme Court and Rhonda Wood from the Arkansas Supreme Court. And today we're gonna be talking about people who have to navigate justice problems without lawyers, which is a topic we all care a lot about. And we care a lot about it because at the end of the day, the rule of law depends on equal access to justice. And when people can't afford lawyers, we want to make sure they can still figure out how to navigate their justice problems and feel like they were able to access the justice that everybody else is able to access. Just by way of background, um, some of this is probably very familiar to lawyers, but might not be as familiar to other people. An awful lot of people experience some kind of issue for which they have to navigate courts, whether it's a debt collection issue, a family law issue, an eviction question. There are lots of reasons why people end up, uh, not usually because they want to, but having to figure out how to navigate the justice system. And most of them can't afford lawyers. Uh, About seven out of 10 uh, households have at least one civil legal problem in any given year, and most of them cannot afford to hire lawyers to help with those problems. And lawyers are very difficult to scale. Um, As many lawyers as there are, we're not gonna have enough lawyers to handle all of those justice problems. So all of our states and lots of other states work on other creative ways to make sure that that large number of people who have to figure out how to navigate their problems and can't afford lawyers can do so and feel like they got the answers they needed, were heard, and understood what they had to do next. And there are different ways different states respond to this issue. And we're going to talk a little bit today about how our states do. Um, but also by way of background, as a reminder, since we sit on the state's highest court, in an appellate court, I take it that uh, we don't see people in our courts without lawyers, at least in the Michigan Supreme Court, every once in a while we get uh, applications from people who don't have lawyers. But if we grant in a case where someone doesn't have a lawyer, we find a lawyer for that person. Since I've been on the court, at least we've never had somebody argue in our court without a lawyer. That is not true on the intermediate appellate court in Michigan. And since West Virginia only newly has an intermediate appellate court, I am curious um, about this this sort of background question before we get into what our states are doing with with people who are navigating their problems, mostly in trial courts. So let me let me turn to you first, Beth, on that question. Do you all have you all ever had a litigant appear in your court without a lawyer? We do. The answer is yes. And I would say regularly, although not frequently, there's a couple of different ways it happens. Once in a while, we have we hear lawyer disciplinary cases and occasionally lawyers appear on their own behalf. Now, that's not technically what the kind of self-represented litigants you're talking about, although I would argue that any person, even a lawyer who's choosing to represent themselves in court, sometimes does that at their own peril, but also um, in domestic cases, in occasionally um, property dispute cases, we do have folks who come and appear uh, who are not lawyers and make an argument. Our clerk's office helps them try to navigate and get there. But since we have been the only appellate court, um, we do see that from time to time. I think it will probably shift a little as the intermediate court takes over in particular domestic cases uh, come later this year. That is fascinating. Honestly, I was thinking when I was preparing for this episode, 
that we'd be talking about trial courts and maybe intermediate appellate courts. You know, I remembered Beth might see this happen. How about you, Rhonda? Does people ever appear in your court without lawyers, litigants without lawyers? Yes. I don't recall an oral argument where we've had the case argued um, without a lawyer, but yes, in the civil side, we've had litigants brief cases that are self-represented and have been successful Really, in front of our court. I mean, it's rare. That's fascinating to me. I'm, I'm so, um, since it's never happened in the Michigan Supreme Court, and like I said, we, we have had cases where people file applications uh, without lawyers, and every once in a while we, we grant one, but the court finds a lawyer to represent that person pro bono. Do you have complete discretionary jurisdiction, right? Yeah, we do. See, and I think that may be the difference because yeah. we have a pretty large mandatory jurisdiction. The same thing is that area, I think we're similar to West Virginia. So those cases are going to automatically come to us. That makes sense. But I mean, is there any, do you, do, do you try to find lawyers for those litigants who are trying to navigate your court? It's so interesting because, you know, our courts are really deciding questions of law, right? We're deciding sort of sticky questions of, of law. And that feels like a really uphill battle for somebody who didn't go to law school to be able to handle that assignment. I mean, if you had a, one brief cases where only one side has briefed the case, a case one side appealed and the other side didn't brief. That must also be like a, a, a feature of mandatory jurisdiction, right? I, we don't have one side not filing a brief. We do have often one side that doesn't respond to a leave application. They don't think it's worth their time. You know, they're not, you know, worried that we're going to take the case. But if we do take the case, both sides filed briefs. Yeah, we, we had a case where we took it, the court appeals, the one side won, and then the other side asked us to take cert from the court of appeals, and we did. And then the other side elected not to keep pursuing it in our court. So then we only had one brief, and it ended up being a 4-3 decision. And I actually had taught the lawyer that lo that almost lost. He won the 4-3, but I wrote the dissent. And he he joked, he said, yeah, my law professor almost made me lose the case that the other side didn't even bring. He, I said, well, um, then I apparently didn't teach you very well. <laughs> you almost lost that. But anyway, so I, yeah, I think maybe it's that discretionary jurisdiction. I think that's true. And when I answered your question, Bridget, I wasn't even, I was kind of thinking of, I was picturing them in the courtroom and we, and that was my answer, but I wasn't even thinking about the briefs. We actually have a lawyer in our office of counsel who handles all the self-represented memorandum decisions when uh, for the cases that we don't bring in for oral argument. We have two tracks. One's oral argument. The other is just decision on in a full memorandum decision. And that's what he does is self-represented. And um, just to kick off kind of a concern about this issue, when I got to the court, of course, we were calling them all pro se litigants. And that's, of course, the Latin term for self-represented. And paying attention to you and others, I told the folks at my court, I said, I think we should update our verbiage. And you might say, well, words don't matter. Well, I think words do matter because I think when you use the term self-represented, you're reminding yourself, A, this is a real person that you need to talk to in language that they understand, which I know we're going to talk about. Um, and B, this is a real person. I mean, and they have every right to be there. Um, you know, we may think they should get a lawyer or they should be able to get a lawyer, but we need to treat them um, not with special care, but certainly the care they deserve. Sometimes language matters. And now we call them self-represented litigants as a result of hearing you and others talk about the importance of that. All right. Well, that was a really interesting learning experience for me, as always, visiting with you two ladies. Uh, the differences between state Supreme Courts really are fascinating. But when I thought about this topic, what I was really thinking about was the enormous number of people that navigate trial courts. And most of those cases don't end up in state Supreme Courts. You know, most of the cases where people are navigating a family law matter, an eviction, a debt collection matter, that they get resolved one way or the other in the trial court. I should remind everybody who knows this, if you're, if you're accused of a crime, uh, the Constitution requires that the state hire you a lawyer if you can't afford one. So we're, we're talking largely about civil cases, although I would note that in many jurisdictions, post-conviction criminal matters, and, and I mean by that fines and fees, you know, appearances criminal defendants might make after a conviction to, to settle up whatever they owe the court can happen without lawyers. And, and sometimes those cases 
end up being complicated for trial judges. But we're largely talking about the civil dockets, uh, where people have to navigate their justice problems without lawyers. And there are lots of ways lawyers have worked on this problem, the problem of access to justice for my whole career, for I'm sure your whole, I'm sure you all have been focused on it as well. But each state has different creative ways of, of addressing it. And I, one of the things about pandemic, but um, there's been so much collaboration because we've all had to collaborate across states. Um, and we've learned a lot about really interesting, creative things people are doing in other states on access to justice. And I find myself stealing every one of them. So I'm curious to, to learn a little bit about what your states do about helping people who can't afford uh, a lawyer navigate their justice problems. And, and Rhonda, I'll, I'll start with you. This is not my expertise. <laughs> We've mentioned before that different justices sort of get assigned different areas. And so we have an access to justice commission at the Supreme Court, and I'm not the liaison justice to this, mm -hmm. but it's really sort of a crisis in Arkansas. We are the state with the lowest number of attorneys per population. And a lot of rural sort of towns in Arkansas have just lost their sort of, you think of the typical, I guess, to kill a mockingbird or whatever, to small, you know, a solo practitioner sort of took care of the needs of the community, providing legal services in, in a rural town. And, and those, those attorneys just don't exist anymore. You know, younger generations are not returning to sort of rural um, America to open shop and practice. We have centers for legal services, of course. We have the Access to Justice Commission to do that. So we have a lot of sort of free legal aid that is available to do that. One of the things we did just a few years ago, we've done a couple of things. We've, our, with our law schools, we sort of started a pipeline to try to get them back to rural Arkansas. So we've created a system where they work in the law school that their first year out of law school, if they agree to go back to the rural towns, the law school's legal clinic will continue to provide the sort of paralegal support, the receptionist support, um, and, and provide everything else through the law school and kind of help fund their expenses as sort of these pilot projects. Because if you think about it, you go open a solo practice, you're just kind of there by yourself and you can't afford all the support staff. <laughs> so it's sort of, they're still providing the support staff for you as you start that solo office and they're actually giving them a stipend, helping them sort of pay the bills as they develop that practice. So we're starting that with the law schools. We did an unbundling in Arkansas, and maybe this is something you guys have done in other states. It used to be that you had to go, you hired a lawyer to do the divorce. They had to do everything or nothing. And so we did do a rule change to sort of allow someone to say, I want to go into a lawyer and just hire you to do the actual divorce paperwork and do the actual, give me what the document looks like. And then I'm going to be self-represented and go file it and do it in court myself, but I can't afford to pay you to do the whole thing. So we did a rule change for that. And then the other thing we've tried to do, and I, I think Michigan may have already done this, as we looked at other states to encourage attorneys to represent people, we started giving them some of their CLE credit for pro bono services. And I will tell you that I was sort of a stickler. I would really prefer that we just, I think it's part of our oath that attorneys take an oath to provide free legal services. That's part of our oath. And so I was actually sort of against doing where it's part of your CLE. I just wanted to say you get 12 hours of CLE and then you turn in your hours of pro bono work. And I want to see it in writing that you've signed off. We require that you do it through an assigned case at one of our legal services that you get assigned a case. But instead, I think we've done it where you have to, if I remember recall, it's like six hours of a case for one hour of CLE and you can only get max of like three hours. So we've done some things like that, but I don't know about you, Beth. Well, I would say that West Virginia probably has sort of the traditional setup of services available. You know, we have Legal Aid of West Virginia, 12 offices throughout the state, and they sort of take the lead on the civil side of things, of course, as Bridget, as you mentioned, criminal, it's kind of, we're not really talking a lot about that today, but, but I will say that only to mention that a lot of the things that our public defender organizations have been doing are trying to figure out how to get people who are in the criminal side, who also have those civil problems, the correct representation or services when it comes to addiction and the need for services. So even though they're separate, 
Sometimes they overlap because if someone has been charged with a crime as a result of drug use or drug sales or whatever, whatever it is, chances are they're going to have trouble perhaps with a landlord or with their, or they're going to be in a domestic situation or whatever. So there's a lot of overlap, even though what we're talking about today is really civil representation. The other thing I would add to the kinds of things that I'm sure are happening in Michigan that are pretty exciting is our clinics at, as I've talked about before, we have one law school in West Virginia, West Virginia University. They have really stepped up in terms of providing services for indigent clients, innocent project type work, but also an immigration clinic and a number of other clinics that are sort of stepping up to teach lawyers how to lawyer in these clinics, but also to provide the services. And I'm really proud of what they've done at WVU. It's a huge program, very popular with the students. And it's actually, I think, attracting some folks who are interested in that kind of work to think about law school at WVU. So those are just a couple of ways that, the couple of options that are available to folks in West Virginia. Like Arkansas and West Virginia, we have excellent legal services offices throughout the state. And I think the legal services lawyers are among the best lawyers you see. Um, they're certainly committed and work really hard, but they definitely can't handle all of the legal issues in their local communities. We have, like Arkansas, we have unbundled legal services by rule, so people can, lawyers, I should say, could take on just a part of a case, which does make a difference in spreading, uh, spreading people's services a little further. And we have a pretty, I think, exciting and innovative self-represented litigant resource in michiganlegalhelp.org. It's a, it's a website, it's a web tool, although it also has 19 centers throughout the state in courthouses where there are actual humans who can help people who weren't successful maybe navigating the, the the website but the website is very user friendly it's you you can use it not only in english but in spanish and i think arabic i have to double check on that but it has forms so if you're involved in a particular kind of case it will walk you through a set of prompts and complete the right forms for you and then file them in court it will also just give you information if that's all you need to understand what it is that you're you're dealing with. It has an online chat tool, which is staffed by law students who are supervised by, by lawyers who can answer, answer questions for people. And it sees unbelievably high traffic. I mean, the numbers of people who use michiganlegalhelp.org every day are really off the charts, even more so since the pandemic started, which is probably not surprising. But it's a great, it's a great resource. And figuring out how to make sure more people know about it is something we spend some time on, just so people have people feel like they have at least one place to turn when they have a justice problem. Um, and like Arkansas, we do have a Justice for All Commission, and I'm interested, Rhonda, to learn a little bit more about yours. But I'll start with Michigan's. It's it, ours is ours is actually fairly new, and a, a lot of states have had Justice for All commissions, where access to justice commissions have a, a number of different names in different states. I think dating back to Texas's is like from 2000. Texas is always a first on everything. They're killing us. But a, a number of states, I mean, the majority of states have some kind of access to justice or justice for all commission. Ours is relatively new, and it, it is the outgrowth of a justice for all planning process that we underwent in 2019 and 2020 with funding from the National Center for State Courts, where we did a statewide inventory to kind of figure out where we had resources and where we had gaps, because that's not something we really knew before. You know, we really didn't have a, a great sense of where the greatest needs were and what were the different ways we could meet those needs. And the, and the plan that our task force came up with is pretty exciting. And I'll talk about some parts of it, at, you know, throughout the conversation. But the work is... Uh, it, it entails a lot more than figuring out how to get lawyers to help people with justice problems. As I said before, I don't, you know, lawyers are hard to scale. Um, so we need other solutions in addition to lawyers volunteering. But before I turn to, I, I want to talk about lawyers volunteering and pro bono and what that means. Rhonda, you mentioned you have, I know you're not the liaison to it, so you're not the expert. Do you, do you have a sense of what your um, Access to Justice Commission spends its time on? We have commission which is set through the Supreme Court which we're right next to Texas so I think we like whatever Texas did we did so I think ours is around 2000 uh, that it started which is funded through attorney license fees so it's part of it's actually part of the Supreme Court's budget so it's through the fees that come through the court 
and we have yeah. a director and several staff people and their job is they spend a lot of time on research. They spend a lot of time help telling the court and looking at ways to improve court rules, court functions. For instance, when we are doing e-filing, do, we have e-filing now across Arkansas, suggestions about if we're part of the, our court role was if a court added e-filing, they had to have a, at the same time, put a public computer in every courthouse for the public to access if they were going to go online with court e-filing. So it was like telling us those kind of roles. And then they sort of have a side counterpart, which is an access to justice foundation. And the foundation goes out there and does, raises money. They do a lot of sort of events. They do work to schedule, you know, like a eviction day where they bring in attorneys and do mass at like a big stadium. Anybody can show up and they get a bunch of, you know, a hundred attorneys to show up to you know, mass help people with evictions or a Veterans Day event, you know, free Veteran Day, those kind of things. Um, but they sort of, you know, help with all the various legal services and sort of tell us what the needs are and help guide us. Same thing, they helped us. They were the ones that kind of helped us rewrite the unbundling rules. And they just do a lot of education and and came to us with the, you know, the rule change about how we need to, to do ours And then attorneys sort of have to go through them to get credits for their hours that they funnel them out to an approved pro bono entity. So um, it's not like an attorney can just say, I didn't get paid on a case. So I get credit (laughs) as doing that. That's interesting. Beth, does West Virginia have an Access to Justice Commission of some kind? We have had in the past an Access to Justice Commission, not as carefully funded as I'm hearing Arkansas and I'm assuming Michigan. And so that's probably why responsibility for it has been kind of a passion project for past justices. And then it went up to the law school for a while. And it really is something that um, now you're going to inspire me to look into and figure out what we can do better. But I will say in terms of, you know, just the, our state bar, our man, you know, our state bar is the mandatory bar association. So all the lawyers have, they do, even though we don't offer CLE for pro bono work, they do a pretty good job of giving opportunities for folks to sort of be aware of pro bono and all of that. And I'll just mention, it's kind of anticipating, we'll probably talk about how people find lawyers. You know, how does it, and it sounds like, you know, Michigan Legal Connect, they just go on there and they can figure out where to find a lawyer. In West Virginia, we have a very old but charming program, which is called Tuesday Legal Connect. And you guys have probably had it in the past. I don't know if you still do, but our state bar every single Tuesday from six to eight o'clock mans a telephone number and folks can call and ask where to find a lawyer. And I actually remember working. They used to, it was live at, at the state bar headquarters back in the nineties and you'd go because there was free pizza and you know, why not? It, that's a good thing. Now I think people work out of their homes. I, sus- I suspect and man the hotline, but it's, it's very, very grassrootsy, I would say, in West Virginia, as opposed to organized, which is sort of true to how we are, not a huge state. But you guys are giving me ideas that I'm writing down, including this unbundling thing, because I honestly do not know what the state of our rules is on that. And I'm going to figure it out. So that's interesting. How, what about in Arkansas, Rhonda? How do, how do litigants find lawyers who can take on a case pro bono? And I should step back and say, we should explain what pro bono means, right? It means for the good of the public. And it's a Again, like we use these Latin terms, I guess, I don't know, to make it sound like we're special, but it just means uh, a lawyer who is willing to do a case uh, for somebody who can't afford to pay the lawyer. It's for the good of the public. It is for the good of the litigant. It's also for the good of the court often to have uh, a lawyer representing somebody who uh, might be able to get a different outcome with a lawyer. What about in Arkansas, Rhonda? Is there is there a state bar program? How does somebody find pro bono lawyers to yeah. the extent there are? Our Arkansas Bar Association has like a find a lawyer on their website. Our access to justice is www.arkansasjustice.org. And then if you do backslash need help mm-hmm. and they have a toll free hotline, it's 1-888-540-2941. So there's a hotline and on the website, it connects them with all the legal services and the bar and everything like that. And then that's another thing Access to Justice has done is they produce little sort of bookmarks and little flyers. And I know, I hope they still do this, but I know we they used to mass produce them um, and 
when we were on the trial bench, I know my assistant, trial court assistant, if anybody responded pro se to a complaint and not pro se, but you know, but I still use that language. Some they're self-represented litigants, but if they responded without an attorney and answered a complaint, we would, when we'd sort of set them out, here's the next step in the process. She would mail them the little bookmark or information sheet that would say, you may be happy doing this on your own, but here's where you can reach out to legal services. And we just send that out to everybody. And they have it posted in all the courthouses and everything along that line as well. It's nice to have sort of a one-stop shopping. And it's one of the hardest things, I think, to, to establish, especially online when there are different places where people can turn to. And so it's one of the reasons why I feel like the Supreme Court in its administrative oversight role, taking the lead on messaging maybe one incoming portal for everybody who has justice needs and maybe they'll be able to find a lawyer. But if not, here are these other options. Sounds like that's kind of the way your commission is serving, which is great, I think. Beth, your comment about funding for access to justice work is really important one. And I do think it's one of those tougher issues around this question. And I I want you guys to know that I've had really good luck with my legislature funding our Justice for All Commission work the last two sessions. And you know why? When we did our Justice for All strategic planning process or Justice for All task force, we invited legislators to be part of it and to come to the public meetings. We held public meetings until COVID shut them down. Then we held them online, but we did hold them in person for a little while. And you would not believe how many people show up when you say, we want to hear from you about how you are handling legal problems for which you can't afford lawyers. They come out of the woodwork and they have a lot to say. Not all of it is like equally productive, but it's all worth hearing. Um, And we invited the local legislators in each place we went to, but it was not news to them because they're already getting those calls. All of our state reps around the state, especially like you, Rhonda, in some of the rural jurisdictions in Michigan, there might be no lawyers. And so they, their staff get these calls from people like, what do I do about X, Y, Z? They don't know what to tell them. And so it's actually been a, they've been really responsive to our justice for all commission work because they like that they now have something to tell people who call their office. (laughs) So I've had really good luck getting funding for it the last sessions for whatever it's worth, write that down go to the legislature, ask them for funding. I want to ask next about what courts can do. Rhonda, you were a trial judge, so you actually have the most experience here, but what can courts do to make it easier for self-represented litigants to navigate their issues once they're in a courtroom or before or after? And what is a judge's job? It's a compound question, so take whatever part of it you want. I think it's different than when I was there. I've been gone now for 10 years from the trial court. Nowadays, I think I'm just convinced we have to do everything. Having the education on how to navigate it ahead of time, I believe short, clear, concise YouTube videos is the way to go. I've been doing this with the Children's Commission. We have to have short, clear, concise for children and families. Of you know, we used to have these old videos about what the clock's ticking for parents. You know, <laughs> about your rights. I think that. If you're going to go to court and represent yourself, they need to not know it's not Judge Judy and this isn't how you act. If you're handling divorce in Arkansas as self-represented, the Supreme Court has a YouTube site. Everything else or other courts, go watch five minute, here's how it works. I think that's unfortunately how people learn now. And especially this younger generation, that's how they learn. And then the use of apps. You can do everything by apps, developing things that are by apps or even by games. I know this is going off in another area, but I'm a big believer now that that's how we have to work with probationers is when they learn their terms and conditions of probation, that they don't learn it on a hand and piece of paper, they read it and sign it. But if they have to interact and do it, that then they will recall it better. In the texting about when your hearing is, um, we have it now through e-filing because we have that through, I think, 85, 90% of Arkansas. So they can get an email alert when everything happens in their case and they'll get the actual documents and everything. But we have to expand that into texting. All of our jurors are on text notifications now, pretty much in Arkansas. So I don't see why we can't have that as a text option as well, besides email notification. So I think making it simple. The one case I remember, and this will like me digressing, of course, is I had this man in in rural Arkansas and people 
don't we forget in cities that you don't always have mail delivered to your home and the mail truck doesn't go to everybody. So his mail went to PO box, but he did not have a car. So someone from church drove him in to his PO box every four or five weeks. That's how he checked his mail. And so he drove in, you know, he got a lawsuit. He co-signed for a granddaughter's car. Oh, he didn't have one, but he signed the accept service, a little post-it thing and signed it and took his mail home. Well, he got his notice and had to respond to the complaint, but he couldn't do anything till the next time he got driven into town to a post office box. And so of course he missed his window, didn't answer default judgment, all of that. And when I finally, we, we got his response, it was late and it was a default judgment. And the attorney got mad at me because we said it a hearing and I made the attorney drive out to his house to give notice of the hearing, you know, because the gentleman explained that he wrote a letter to me that he was probably late. And I said, go out there to his house to find out when he can meet, find out when he can get a ride. And that's when we'll have court. Oh, and he came in and we had the whole process, but we forget those things with our roles. And it's not conceivable. I understand in like New York city in a big docket. I don't know how you handle it. That's a great story though. A lot about you, my friend, but you know, you're trying to figure out how to make sure the court can work for people who it's a little bit out of reach for. Yeah, it's a great answer to my question. Beth, do you have any ideas what what creative things can courts do or judges do when trying to make sure people without lawyers get the justice they're entitled to? Amen to everything our friend just said, because, and I won't repeat it, but this, we've done videos, for example, on the domestic violence protective order process to try to explain to people what that is. And I think those are really powerful and they are, you, you need to meet people where they are right now. And that's how folks learn. We and all the other courts around the country, I'm sure are going to continue to do that. Thinking about this issue kind of in advance of today, I think a lot of what judges and courts have to do is realize that we have all of these procedures and they're designed for various purposes to make it easier for judges, make it easier for litigants, lawyers understand the rules. But when you have a self-represented person, court proceedings are not about who's best at the procedure. Courts, A court proceeding is about the merits. And I think it's really hard for, a, you know, to figure out, I think a judge just always has to be thinking about the fact that this is not a gotcha moment for the guy who doesn't get to check his PO box very often. This is about someone is claiming that someone owes them money or has done something wrong. And how do you facilitate that process going forward without anyone being treated unfairly along the way? And that's the challenge with self-represented litigants. You're ultimately trying to figure out what the right answer is as a judge. I was never a trial judge, but I'm pretty sure that's what you enabling people to take both sides of it. And what you see on Judge Judy is good and bad. I think I don't watch a lot of Judge Judy. I get asked about Judge Judy all the time. But no, I think some of those shows demonstrate that you got to get down to what, what the real truth is. And I think that's what our judges also do. It's just not nearly as sort of interesting as television, but I still think it's important. And I think local judges, particularly in rural communities, know their, know their communities, know the resources that are available and have to help people navigate that process without tipping the scales one way or the other. I don't know. I mean, I think everybody's trying all kinds of interesting ideas. I, I think the YouTube videos or any other videos that are kind of simple, plain language are really a fantastic tool to give people information, at least helps them feel a little better prepared, right? I mean, you know, what we're all worried about, I hear in both of your answers is you don't want people to feel like the system is rigged. And the truth is there's all kinds of really interesting social science data that people will accept bad outcomes, bad outcomes, meaning like they don't have to win their case if they feel like they understood what happened, they feel like they were listened to and they understand why the judge did what the judge did. And there are lots of really good social science data that supports that. So just finding different ways to make sure people understand what's happening and can say what it is they want the judge to hear, even if it ends up not making a difference in the merits, as you said, Beth, I agree. A judge can make it clear that she's heard it and even explain why it might not matter ultimately for what the judge has to decide. And that's kind of the whole ballgame. So technology is a great tool. And it sounds like you all both have pretty cool things happening with technology. And you're right, Rhonda, about text reminders. There's actually really interesting data about 
text reminders being the single, nothing is more likely to predict whether someone comes back to court or pays a fine or a fee than whether they get a text reminder. It's not whether they have a job, it's not whether they have stable housing, it's not whether they have a supportive family, it is literally whether they get a text reminder. It's just like we remember to go to the dentist when we get the text reminder. I wish they could send me like one fewer because they send me so many, but still, the dentist knows what she's doing because that's why we get all those text reminders. So there's a, there's a role for technology to play. But as you all know, technology and government is often, government technology is not always private sector technology for all kinds of reasons. There are all kinds of barriers, funding, for example, and different units of government that use different platforms and therefore don't communicate to one another. And I think some states have it easier than others. States that have unified court systems, for example, usually have unified technology systems and that makes a difference. But in Michigan, at least, we have really enormous technology barriers, even though we're really interested in technology forward ways to help people who can't afford lawyers. And it's because we're a disunified system and we have 16 different case management systems throughout the state. And I'm curious if you all have better, a more rosy picture in terms of court technology or justice system technology or government technology, or do you also have barriers? I don't know. What's it like in West Virginia, Beth? We are one of those unified states, a a standard case management system in the counties as we're rolling out e-filing. So that's a plus. We're getting ready to do the intermediate court, which means we're going to start them as paperless, which is great. And I think we're going to automate us in the process, which is all great. But the challenge we've had, and I'll tell the little story about a little project we're working on for the new intermediate court, is the infrastructure out in the rural areas. You can put all of this stuff on the web. But if you have somebody at the end of a road in a holler that doesn't have internet, it is useless to them. And so, for example, our intermediate court, main jurisdiction of our new intermediate court is civil cases and domestic cases. And we have a lot of self-represented litigants in domestic cases. And we decided that rather than make those self-represented litigants travel all the way to Charleston, which from some places in our state is four or five hours away, that we're going to set up little remote locations in four or five different county courthouses where you will have a dedicated computer, set up a bench, chairs, so that somebody can feel like they're actually coming to court and know that the internet won't kick out, their screen won't freeze. This is pandemic learning that we've been able to do because we all have navigated this Zoom thing and figured out that some of the rural areas, they just can't rely on the broadband yet. And so we're going to physically try to set up these remote locations so that people can appear in court without having to travel um, just to see how it works. And we may do it, but then we may explore it for Supreme Court hearings or other uses. But what we learned is, and why we went live so quickly, back to being live in our Supreme Court for a year and a half now, is we just didn't have the broadband to support remote court for that long. So that's a little bit about our technology. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm writing that down. Ron, did you have any good technology ideas for me that I can steal? We're not unified, but we've been really successful that we've had everybody on our court management system. And then we've gone to e-filing. That's been successful. We've had e-filing in our appellate courts. I am on the automation um, committee and do our automation liaison. And I think that if we just have good programs that, that buy into it and some counties that pushed back and didn't join, once the others spoke highly of it, then the attorneys were, you need to be on this. <laughs> they got pressure. Some of the local attorneys that practice in different jurisdictions pressured them. And definitely we have a juror management system where the jurors, you know, instead of sending in the old school forms, they go in and sign up you know, online and they get the text and they do that. It's all online and they get the text notifications. And that's been just Again, what you said, monumental as far as increased response for juror summons. And by doing that, we're actually recreating our court management system. We have a public court, the PACER system for federal. We're in the process of updating it. It's funny because we think that it is not as user-friendly, but when I see any other state's system, ours is unbelievably user-friendly. And I think ours is really one of the best in the country that you just go to our public site and you can type in a person's name and find any case and pull up every document when the next hearing is, whether the case is open, closed, view every single filing in it. And it's just the easiest access. You can search for anything. Okay, I'm going to your website right after we do this. Just go to case info, 
www.arcourts.gov. And it just says, do you want to search by person? Do you want to search by this, by date? But you can see it's so transparent that you can see, you can go in and search by judge and see what hearings they have today, everything. That's great. We call it like 2.0 and we're working on a version 8.0 to roll out right now that's going to be much improved. It's pretty exciting. We are building our own systems in-house with IT. That's one of the things we're kind of proud of. What about Michigan, Bridget? It's a mess in short, but we're getting there. We have 16 different case management systems, which is down from 20 a couple of years ago. The governor's budget recommends funding for a statewide case management system, which is something I've been working on and pushing for for the last few years. And I'm optimistic that I'm about to cross the finish line and make that happen. And if I actually do, if the the legislature goes along with it, it sounds like they're going to, I think I probably should just drop the mic and go go do something else, work at Starbucks or something. (laughs) Statewide case management makes all the difference in the world because you can take all these other innovations and make them work for everybody in the state. And that's kind of the point, right? I mean, what we've learned is There are all these pockets where um, people don't have, there might be no lawyer in a community and no information. And so having a statewide response is is pretty critical. Well, we've talked a long time and I want to get to a speed round, but the one thing we didn't talk about, and I just want to quickly see if either of your states is doing anything in this area is what people are calling re-regulation or regulatory reform. You've probably followed Arizona and Utah have, they each have programs where they are experimenting with letting people other than lawyers help people with justice problems. In some cases that it's tech companies and in other cases it's navigator programs where people can, people who are not lawyers can be trained in a specific area of law and be, and be able to help people who have that particular kind of legal problem. And there, there's data on this from the UK and from Canada. And it looks like more and more states are, are looking at regulatory reform. And I'm curious if either West Virginia or Arkansas is, is looking at regulatory reform at all. So I'll start and say that we're not formally looking at it. I am personally looking at it because one of the problems that we've identified and our legislators actually talk about all the time is, again, you know, I've said before, we have a huge workload of child abuse and neglect cases in West Virginia, and it remains. It's maybe as the opioid epidemic worked its way, maybe this would too, but it's here. And one of the challenges we have, for example, is finding enough people to be guardians at LITEM, which basically is a not really like a lawyer. It's more like an advocate for a child, a minor child in these proceedings. And when you have a small county and there are only five or six lawyers who do this work at all, somebody's got to be the prosecutor. Somebody's got to be the defendant, you know, defending the parents. And then somebody's going to be the guardian and you start running out of lawyers. And so it strikes me is that this being guardian, you know, reporting on the welfare of children, telling the courts what's going on with children, cutting through the conflict that parents can have sometimes in domestic proceedings, which is another area for guardians, seems like it would be ripe for something like what you're talking about, because you don't necessarily have to be an expert on the rules of civil procedure. You just have to know what your responsibility is to the children. So that's something I'm looking into personally to see whether that might help with our crisis problem in West Virginia with guardians ad litem. Interesting. Rhonda, is Arkansas looking at regulatory reform at all or navigator programs? No, we haven't done anything. The only thing we've done is in the last year, we've changed and expanded the unauthorized practice of law committee because it used to be primarily um, attorneys. So we, I think it was an ABA recommendation. We yeah. we had the ABA come in and reevaluate us and look at us. And so we did come in and we expanded it to more lay persons. And I think to look at what we're doing with that and what we consider the practice of law and not the practice of law. So that's sort of the first step with where we're looking. Michigan's looking at it. Our regulatory reform work is situated or housed within our Justice for All Commission. And we're sort of looking at it in a problem by problem sense, kind of similar to your interest, Beth. We're we're starting with landlord-tenant cases and debt collection cases, both cases where one side is largely unrepresented in Michigan courts and could be good places for navigators. 
but we can report back is that I think that's going to be a, a topic we're all going to be talking a lot about in the next few years. Bridget, you're certainly recognized as a leader across the country at looking at these kinds of issues, whether it be the regulatory reform or whether just stepping back to the today's podcast, this whole issue of access to justice and self-represented litigants, it's something you're passionate about. And I just want to do a hats off to you for your hard work and just always speaking up in a way that makes sense to people. This doesn't have to be sometimes partisan siding can try to own issues. And you come at this issue just trying to help people in the justice system. And I just want to compliment you on your work. Oh, that is very nice. It is definitely something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and working on in a bunch of different contexts. I appreciate it. I do think it's actually, I think it's good for the profession and ultimately good for the rule of law if, if we can figure out how to do better on access to justice. As, as we were all saying before, when people understand what is happening to them in courts, it enhances public's confidence in what we do. So we all have a lot to gain and I appreciate all, all that you all are doing as well. Okay, lightning round. What matters here is that we just go in the same order. So I don't know what we did last time, but I'm going to go Rhonda Beth me. So we'll start with, give us your latest TV recommendation for binging, Rhonda. So I'm, I'm such a nerd. It's Atlantic Crossing. It's a PBS masterpiece, but it's, <laughs> start laughing, Richard. <laughs> the Norwegian crown princess, when she comes overseas to get help for Norway during World War II with President Roosevelt, and it's really fantastic. I promise, give it a shot. <laughs> so I am a pass because I am a complete Luddite on television binge watching. I don't watch anything. So I got nothing. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, then I'll get two answers. First is boring because everybody's already seen Succession. It took me forever to start watching it because I kept thinking, why would I want to watch that? I don't think there's nothing about that that interests me. And then once I watched a couple of them, couldn't stop. So we just, my husband and I just finished that recently. And I'm just starting season two of Cheer. Cheer is also amazing. So I'm a little bit lower brow than Rhonda and I guess significantly lower brow than Beth, but I guess- that's No, no, you're, you're, much, you're much better. See, I have, I have a pop culture literacy of zero. So, um, well, so you're very much better. And I Succession. So I'm with you there. That's, it's fantastic. It's amazing. But acting is amazing, right? Yeah. Yes. All right. How about this one? A food you don't like that most people do, Rhonda. Well, and I think it most people do. Corn. Oh, yeah, of course they do. No, and I was born in Iowa even. <sighs> and people stick corn, I'm just going to say, in the most random things. Why do you ruin like salsa or crab cakes or really good food and you stick corn in it? It's so frustrating. Something that I used to like that I don't like anymore as part of my little health initiative. I quit eating meat. And now that I go back and try it, I don't like it anymore. You don't eat any meat. I don't think I realized no. that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I don't know if my, I have again, and I have two, it's so funny. I made you guys pick one and I'm going with two, but I, you have to tell me if other people like these. So I don't know if I'm actually playing by the rules. Beets. Do most people like beets? No, I don't like beets. Oh, I love beets, but oh, most people hate them. I think. Oh, okay. So most people hate them. So that doesn't They're matter. purple and gross. I think to a lot of people. Yeah. And the texture is gross. Like, why is it all like, ugh, it's yuck. What, what about coconut? Do most people like coconut? Yes. You don't okay. Like I can't stand it. Can't stand it. It's disgusting. So you can't do any like fun coconut drinks? No, gross. Don't put coconut near me in any way. <laughs> well, you're just is it like cilantro with some people when you don't do any kind of mousses and anything <laughs> like that? And now coconuts are out. Yep. All right. Next one. Is there a teacher you remember from grade school? And if so, who is it and why? Rhonda. So I don't have a grade school. I have a high school. My high school civic teacher was Ron Johnson. And I just remembered that he put up with me arguing the opposite side of every issue. And he just really spurred that intellectual debate in class. From a young age, I appreciated him seeing, allowing people to see both sides of an issue. Beth? Mine is Mr. Hinton from seventh grade, Jim Hinton, who actually passed, just passed away last year. I have been thinking about him. And I tell the story of when I decided to become a lawyer, I was in seventh grade and it was in Mr. Hinton's social studies class. So that is memorable to me. That's amazing. Mine is Sister Kathleen because Sister Kathleen was just the most loving 
she was my first grade teacher. She was everybody's first grade teacher for 4,000 years. Um, when she retired, I was still in grade school and we did this whole, what do you call it? You know, we had a whole assembly devoted to Sister Kathleen and her retirement. And we, they taught us a song that they made up to the, do you remember the Coke is it jingle? Coke is it? And we did Sisters It and we did like a whole Sisters It song to Sisters Kathleen because everybody loved her that much. But I felt pretty sure that she loved me the most. But I learned later from my siblings that they all thought that too. She was pretty special because everybody thought that. All right, final one. What are you most looking forward to post-pandemic, which crossed my fingers, I think is almost here or maybe here-ish, about to be here, Rhonda. For me, it's family game night. We have always had family game night and we are vicious and we've had to have like a no physical contact rule established because we've had injuries, Um, but we've not had one since um, COVID because someone's always been in quarantine. And so I'm really excited to get back to family game night. Mine is unlimited travel. Mr. Walker and I really enjoy traveling. I know it's kind of returning now, but it's still sort of up in the air at all times. And there's a lot of restrictions and testing and all of that. I look forward to when you can just plan a trip and go safely without all this hassle. I am looking forward to travel a lot. And especially my parents don't live in Michigan. They uh, live in other states and they're both getting up there. And I don't like this period where... I can't just get on a plane and visit them for a weekend whenever I want. And I'm really looking forward to being able to do a lot of that this spring and summer. Well, thanks everybody for joining me in this conversation. It's an issue that all of our courts are thinking about and working on state courts in particular. That's of course where most justice happens. This is an issue that uh, state Supreme Courts and I know trial courts think a lot about. And we appreciate your listening. We will be back next month. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit LadyJusticePod.com. There, you can also record a voice message with a question or comment. The opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.